Welcome to Not Quite Right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. This is the seventh in a series of interviews that we recorded at the Words on the Waves Writers Festival. This time we spoke with Melissa Levi. Melissa is a clinical psychologist who specialises in older people's mental health and dementia. Her book is We Need to Talk About Aging, and we chatted with Melissa about how to broach these important topics with family members. I really enjoyed our chat with Melissa. It was a bit like a therapy session for me because I come from a long line of incredibly independent women who don't like to be told what to do. And so this was like a really great insight into how to deal with some of those issues of aging and how to have those conversations with people who maybe aren't used to asking for help or needing help and how to maybe overcome some of that when you are trying to care for a loved one. So we're here at Words on the Waves with Melissa Levi. Now, Melissa, you're a clinical psychologist and your latest book is called We Need to Talk About Aging. So who is this book for? This book was really written, um, it was based on sort of my own family's journey with my grandfather, my Zeta, um, through sort of dementia and end of life. Um, And it's also been based on, so as a clinical psychologist, I've been fortunate to sort of help over a thousand families navigate the aging journey. Um, And it's really a book that I wish my family and these families had had, you know, at the beginning um, of their journey. So it's for maybe people in their sort of 40s to 60s um, that are likely thinking about, worrying about and caring for their aging parents and aging loved ones. Um, But it's also for older people themselves who are maybe in their sort of 50s, 60s, 70s and starting to think about wanting to plan for the future. We're just talking to Jane actually a moment ago who you were on the panel with and I think we're in that age group, right, 40 40 plus. Well, you're not quite there Excuse me, I've got a whole month to go. (laughs) Um, And that's become an issue as well for for my family, my extended family, um, ageing and getting exposure for the first time to the aged care system and what it means to be confronting those issues. So, yeah, it's a a very important um, topic. I think it's interesting though because you say we need to talk about aging and the book obviously is trying to open up that conversation. I come from a family um, that won't stop talking and <laughs> there's no problem in our family talking about this th- these things. There's not this sort of discomfort about death and aging that I think some people find very confronting. And you have, you know, conversation starters, I guess, about how people would talk about this. What would you say to people who are more um, reluctant, I guess, to even – broach the topic of death in particular, but ageing as well. What would you say to those people? So I I think your family sounds very much like my husband's family. So my family um, are probably similar to to the majority um, out there in terms of, you know, I was just starting my career when my grandfather was diagnosed with dementia. So at that time as a family, we just, we didn't know how to have these conversations and it felt really morbid, really taboo as if somehow superstitiously by speaking about it, we would sort of bring it into being. My husband's family was really different. So they used to all gather around the dinner table, a huge family of 30-something people, you know, sitting around the table. And they would not only talk about aging and death, they would laugh about it Mm. and joke about it with the, you know, apparently soon to be deceased sitting at the table sort of (laughs) like leading the charge. And I had never witnessed anything like it. Um, and initially was really taken aback by it and thought, oh my gosh, that's really confronting or that's really crude. Or, But then of course I got to see our sort of family's parallel journeys unfold. And my family 
the journey was really fraught because every decision was just so overwhelming and confusing and complex because we didn't have clarity on exactly what our options were, what my Zeta would have wanted, what resources we had as a, as a family, whose role was what. And whereas for my husband's family, they knew exactly what his pa wanted. Pa's doctors knew exactly what he wanted. There was no confusion. They knew their options. They had plans in place. And not only was it a gift to his pa and the aging journey that he had, but also in death, it afforded his wife of 63 years and his family so much resilience because there was no second guessing. Mm. They were so at ease with what had happened. They were so comfortable that they had done their absolute best for this person that they loved fiercely. Whereas if I think about my family's journey in grief, it, it was sort of riddled with a lot of second guessing and a lot of what ifs and so much so that I wrote a book about, you know, possibly for my own catharsis about, you know, what I wish maybe we had known and, and done differently. So I think in terms of having these conversations, if you're reluctant, I guess one thing that helps is sort of keeping that end goal in mind that actually that this is a gift. It's a gift because by getting really clear on what your aging loved one wishes for themselves in terms of their medical care, where they live, who might care for them and how they want to spend their days, you know, what matters to them, what brings them joy, um, clarifying, you know, what, what's everybody's role within the family system. It's a gift to give them the best journey, mm. but also a gift to those, you know, their family and their loved ones that, you know, will be left behind. I also find sometimes just on a practical level, you don't have to have this big, serious conversation in one sitting, like mm. pop on the kettle crack open a good bottle of wine. And really all you're wanting to do is just encourage your loved one, maybe even just to go to the GP. Mm. And maybe that's where they have a bigger conversation. Mm. So you don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to cover all the ground. Um, if your loved one or if you are feeling really, really hesitant about having the conversation, if you know who, you know, mum and dad's GP is or if they have a trusted, you know, financial advisor or lawyer, just someone that they trust in their life that gives them advice, you can always put a call into that person and basically say, look, you know, I'm not, I don't want to encroach on your confidentiality, um, but I just want to let you know, you know, these are my concerns. This is what I'm thinking about, but I just, I don't know how to raise it. I don't feel comfortable mm. raising it. Can you maybe try to address that? Um, and having someone who is a trusted professional maybe facilitate the conversation. Mm. So what are the, some of the areas that you think that people are surprised by when they start um, facing the realities of ageing that they need to start talking about early? I, I think often they're – there are a lot of pleasant surprises actually as well. So I think one of the things that they're often surprised by is the amount of choice, the, the number of options that are available. And the problem is when we don't talk about aging, um, our options narrow. So, you know, if we start, for example, if I think of um, dementia, so there's a number of different treatments for dementia. Yes, there's still no cure, but there are a number of different medication treatments. There are things like cognitive rehabilitation and lifestyle strategies, but they're a lot more effective earlier in the disease course or even as a preventative measure. Mm -hmm. So if we avoid the conversation about, you know, gosh, I think maybe mum's memory is not as good as it used to be until it's really progressed, we might have missed some opportunities for intervention. And the same with care. 
if we sort of leave it to the last minute and think, oh no, you know, mum's really not managing at home. Maybe, you know, she's lost weight. She's, you know, finding it harder to cook for herself or she's had a couple of falls. Okay. We need to get carers and we need to get them in fast. You're sort of at the mercy of who's available and who's affordable rather than sort of, you know, maybe having some government funding lined up and same for residential aged care. Basically, I just think the earlier you have these conversations, the more you're able to explore the diversity of options that are available to you. And the other thing I've sort of come to know as a bit of a pleasant surprise is that sometimes when you broach the conversation, instead of getting the the pushback and the discomfort that you might be expecting, some people are actually really relieved that you've brought it up because your parent might be worrying about, gosh, you know, what's going to happen to me over the next 5, 10, 15 years? What would happen if I got sick? What would happen, you know, if, if money became really tight and they're not mentioning it? And then you're thinking, oh God, you know, what do I do? You know, what are mums, what does mum want me to do in this situation? So it just eases everyone's anxiety. I know I said to my mum not so long ago, you know, that when she, she's aging, I know she wants to age in place basically. And I know that she would never want to go into a care facility, for example. And it had always been my, my assumption that if she needed me to, like if it needed to be the case, she could come and live with me and my family. And uh, I said that to her and she was shocked, mm. you know, because I never actually said that out loud, that that was my expectation and that I was willing to do that. And um, I think there's probably a lot of assumptions that are made too in families about what's a common understanding that may not be commonly understood by everyone. And and I love that you mentioned that because also this is an ongoing conversation. This mm. isn't a set and forget. So our wishes and our options change over time. You know, they our health changes, our you know, circumstances change, and so too our wishes change. Mm. So it's really just um, you know, it's a funny thing because I've come to know the only thing harder than talking with our loved ones about aging and death while they're still sort of relatively healthy and able to participate in the conversation is not having that conversation. Mm. I've seen those journeys play out, you know, in hospital emergency departments and on the wards and you would just never, ever want that for your family. So um, there's so much to be gained by just opening the conversation and you don't have to get it right. You don't have to get it perfect. It's just, um, yeah, just starting, starting to talk about it and becoming more open to it. So was that, it? were you working as a hospital psychologist at that time? Is that how you were involved in these family conversations? You were being invited in to advise these families? Yeah, correct. So I was at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney for over 10 years mm-hmm. um, and I worked there as a clinical psychologist with their older people's mental health team and also worked a lot with their sort of geriatrics department, their dementia service. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the work that I did was sort of, you know, supporting and counselling families um, around navigating the ageing journey. Mm-hmm. Just listening to some of the questions that um, were asked after that last session, one of the big concerns for people who are ageing seems to be the loss of of, I guess, personal autonomy um, and the ability not to make, be able to make decisions or control their lives. And I think maybe that's a point of resistance as well for a lot of older people who are having their families speak to them, at least I make that assumption, is that a lot of people want to push things into the future and that's something they don't want to think about. What would you say to people who have those concerns that are worried about that loss of personal autonomy? 
think the first thing is to say you are so normal and so human. I think it is a fundamental human right and need to have self-determination, to make up the decisions that sort of constitute how we live our lives. I think that's the mark of being sort of an adult human, right? So the thought of losing that is, is intensely terrifying. But here's the paradox, like here's the clincher. When we don't have these conversations because we're afraid of encroaching on someone's autonomy, we're afraid of encroaching on someone's independence, and that person hasn't had the opportunity to think through and clearly articulate their wishes or take a moment to appoint a legally appointed substitute decision maker who would step in if, you know, heaven forbid, they did become incapacitated to communicate their own wishes. When you don't do all of that, the paradox is you're at greater risk and vulnerability of losing your autonomy mm. because you haven't put those plans in place and you sort of end up at the mercy of whether it's the the healthcare system or the age care system or or just the the people sort of in your lives who are often thrust into these really important decision making roles that perhaps it maybe don't want to be in those roles don't feel prepared for those roles or certainly don't have the required information from you as to what they should be doing. So I get it. I think it's really human because talking about sort of, you know, becoming unwell or losing decision-making capacity, it does. You get that sort of pang of fear of, you know, my God, is that a possibility? Could that happen? You know, it, it sort of risks my autonomy. But I always think of that poem from um, William Ernest Henley called Invictus that I mentioned earlier because I, I love those last lines where he says, you know, I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And I think if that is our wish to remain the authors of our lives, future planning is integral to that, absolutely integral. I just wonder if there's a bit of an irony there that the people who really do highly prize their independence are the exact same people who don't actually want help. And so they they find it difficult to have those conversations where they're relinquishing some of that control yeah. to, to care, you know what I mean? So if you're someone who uh, really values um, making your own decisions, to be informing someone else about how to make decisions for you is a bit counterintuitive, if you know what I mean. And yet, as you've indicated, you end up worse off if you don't have those conversations because you're not – empowering someone to make decisions the way you would make them. They're just going to end up having to make them in the way they they see best. So I think that's interesting. And what would you say to someone, and um, without naming names, my mother <laughs> is not aging, she's, she's quite young, um, but I can see already when we do have these conversations that there's this reluctance to sort of accept any level of help. So what would you say to uh, someone either who is aging themselves or who has older parents about that bridging that divide between like how do I help you be mm -hmm. independent? Do you know what I mean? Yes. And I guess this this is why sometimes having these conversations sort of early can be really helpful because you can have that chat about, you know, mum, what does independence look like for you? Mm. Um, or what does, you know, what does a good day look like for you? And if you break that down, you know, well, mum, if you were no longer able to drive, mm. um, you know, um, just picking a sort of, you know, a, a, a part of daily living, like, you know, how would you want to access your groceries? Mm. So, you know, one option is that, you know, one of your kids goes shopping for you. Another option is that you become acquainted with sort of online ordering and delivery or mm. 
mum, if your if your sort of mobility became compromised and you wanted to stay in your own home, what would be acceptable to you? Mm-hmm. You know, would you consider, you know, putting some grab rails in? Would you consider putting a ramp in? So it's it's the idea that you're on the same team. It's not as though she's holding sort of the baton of her independence and then needs to hand that mm-hmm. over to you. It's like, mum, how do we put scaffolding in place mm-hmm. to keep you as independent as possible for as long as possible? Um, and I, I think the other thing in terms of accepting help, there are a couple of ways to go about it. The first is that you can make these suggestions, you know, mum, we're on the same team. I want to support you to be as independent as possible and to live your way, you know, be stating your intention up front can be really helpful mm-hmm. in just framing the conversation in that mm-hmm. light. But let's say your mum is not having a bar of it. <laughs> Okay, what are your next steps? So something else that you can do is if your mum is more likely to sort of maybe heed advice from another person in her life, Mm. um, you could have maybe have that person approach her. Possibly you could speak to her GP or, you know, if she has sort of another doctor in her her life or someone that she sort of trusts and and, um, you could raise some of your concerns with them and see if they could broach the conversation because there's a different dynamic there hearing it from maybe your doctor or Mm. rather than your child. Mm. Um, But the other hard truth is this, and this is the, the sort of rule of thumb that I live by is at the end of the day, if your aging loved one has decision-making capacity, and it certainly sounds like your mum does, <laughs> ultimately, whether we like it or lump it, it, it is up to them. Mm. It doesn't mean that you drop the conversation and sort of, you know, um, mm. wipe your hands and, and, you know, surrender. It's an ongoing conversation and mum might become more receptive as her journey unfolds and as there are different changes in her life. Um but at the end of the day, she has the right to say no. Mm. She has the right to decline your help, mm. however well-intentioned that help might be. Um, you know, it reminds me, this is a very extreme example, but it reminds me of a, a gentleman who was living in an apartment that was very heavily squalid. So mm. he had been um, hoarding content, you know, for many, many years. And you would sort of open the door and you had to climb over piles of things just to get into the home. Um, and he wasn't even able to sleep in his bed anymore because his bed and his bedroom was so heavily squalid. And um, as he got older, you know, rightly so, his neighbors became very concerned about him. And, you know, it was the question of whether he should basically move into residential aged care because clearly it's not safe. And mm. But we, you know, did a thorough assessment for this gentleman. And the truth was, firstly, he had decision-making capacity. Mm. Secondly, living this way was in keeping with his long-standing wishes. We offered help around, you know, minimizing risk, having the squalor and hoarding team go in there and support him and, you know, clean the place up a little. He he didn't want it. And mm. at the end of the day, while we might all look at that and say, you know, that is not safe, that is not how she how he should be living, mm. actually he has the right to self-determination. He has the right to decide to live that way. Um, and that was the conclusion that we came to. And so I just think keep the conversation going, but never jeopardize your relationship for the sake of pushing home a point. Mm. I think that's more important. I think you raised an interesting point earlier too. And and certainly in the talk, we were talking about hearing aids and um, there's certainly plenty of other assistive devices that come into play as you get older. And, you know, I was speaking about my mother, but as I mentioned, she's, she's still young. Um, she has her mother 
who has hearing aids and doesn't like to wear them. And again, I find that there's maybe this irony um, that people who want to be independent resist these forms of assistive technology because it's somehow indicating that they are failing something that they were otherwise able to do. And yet these things can bring independence. So I think that's interesting too. And what would you say in that regard, if you're caring for someone, how would you help them help themselves by using these things that are available to them? Yeah. Look, I think there's a few ways of going about it. Um, I think one way of going about it is sort of having a chat to them and figuring out what it is about the hearing aids that they really dislike. Because Mm. I've had so many clients where actually it's the shape of the hearing aid, the type of the hearing aid, the background noise. And often they go back to the audiologist, um, sort of get a revised sort of prescription for want of a better word or get a different device. And that just works well for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another way to go about it is to say, you know, really get them to become aware. And I guess it's sort of, you know, building their motivation of what is it that the hearing aid offers you? Mm-hmm. Or what are you missing out on when you're not wearing your hearing aid? Mm-hmm. And just getting them to be really clear about sort of the the pros and cons of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes that's not necessarily a conscious process, especially if it's been thrust upon mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um And then I think the third thing is you can always lean into the science as well. So um, we know that in in 2017 and again in 2020, this sort of, you know, groundbreaking study was published in The Lancet, which is, you know, one of the world's most prestigious medical journals. Um, And basically it was looking at the prevalence of dementia and the authors of the study um, concluded and it was, they looked at, you know, gosh, so much, so much data that 40% of all diagnosed cases of dementia are due to modifiable risk factors. Mm -hmm. So that is that they could be prevented. And they listed 12 of those factors and one of them was hearing loss, Mm -hmm. um, especially when it sort of starts as early as middle age. Mm -hmm. So you can always use that sort of science, you know, give them a reason to persevere with something that is maybe inconvenient or uncomfortable, knowing that maybe they're also preventing things like dementia. Mm And again, I mean, these poor GPs that I'm outsourcing everything to, (laughs) but otherwise you can have a chat with the GP, see if maybe they've got, you know, maybe the right sort of approach or platform to convince your loved one otherwise. But if your granny still has decision-making capacity, Mm. and it certainly sounds like she does, Mm -hmm. she's also allowed to say, no, Mm. I don't want to wear them. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Just to bring out something from my own experience or from my wife's experience with her father who's gone into aged care, one of the big impacts is not necessarily on his experience. He's in aged care and he's doing okay, but it's my wife's mother who's now at home alone dealing with all the things. And you can imagine after being in a, a marriage for, I don't know, 50, 60 years, you have a division of duties and, and there was a whole side to life that she's had no exposure to in that time. And now it's actually the difficult part is her dealing with all of that um, now responsibility falling on her shoulders um, and the rest of the family trying to help her out with that. So I think there's a, there's a whole other side of it that um, uh, also needs to be discussed. How, how would you deal with the fact that your husband is now no longer there? Absolutely. And I think, you know, your I don't know if your mother-in-law would identify as a carer, but but I very much would identify her as as a carer if she was comfortable with that. And I think being a carer feels hard because it is hard. 
Um, and one of the biggest challenges that carers face, whether their loved one is still living with them or whether their loved one has moved into care, is that you're taking on these roles and there are these changes in relationship dynamics. So I had a, um, a carer who I'll call Debbie and her husband um, was sort of in accountancy and when his dementia became quite progressed, all of a sudden she took over managing all of their financial affairs and it was so overwhelming and confusing and they had never sort of had those conversations or that sort of handover or as Debbie said, you know, I've had no training, you know, <laughs> we should have had training sessions for this. Um, but it's, it is so difficult and at the same time as trying to navigate that really practical component, um, there's also a lot of grief, you know, the grief of her husband moving, it sounds like pretty suddenly into aged care, the grief of now living on her own and the changes. So it's, it can be an incredibly challenging time. And I, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think it's very natural within a family system that when we have a loved one who is requiring care, that all of our focus and our time mm. and our energy and our resources go to that person. Um, but we have to be so mindful of caring for our carers because really often they underpin the the care and the well-being and the quality of life that our aging loved one experiences. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you, Melissa. I think we can all agree that we need to talk about aging. <laughs> so, is there anything else you wanted to leave us with? Look, I just, um, I guess the, the real sort of message is that just because aging is inevitable, it doesn't mean that our journeys through later life are somehow predetermined. And actually, if we want to have a voice in how we age, if we want to open up our options, um, and also on a really big scale, you know, if we want to change how society thinks about older people and aging, we need to make a bit of a ruckus. Like we need to start having these conversations on all different levels, you know, within our families, within our healthcare systems, within society. Um, so yeah, I just encourage you to, to start speaking about aging and to really advocate for the journey that your loved one and yourself can experience the best quality of life. Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite right.